Good morning, my friends. It's Wednesday, so it's Bible study. I'm glad that you are here with me. This is the penultimate class for Revelation. We only have one more week after this week, and then we will have gone through all of Daniel and Revelation. And I hope that you've enjoyed this study. It has been a gift to me, especially during this pandemic when we can't be physically together in the same room. It's been wonderful to be able to be with you digitally this way and engage through this pretty remarkable book. As we finish Revelation, know that I am carefully considering what we will do next year. Um, an idea, a plan is forming in my mind. Thank you to those of you who have submitted ideas about what we could do together because I think I'm creating something that might even look like three-year cycle. Like we might plan next year as the first of a three-year cycle of classes on books and ideas that I really think will be a gift to all of us. And so stay tuned. I hope by next week I'll have kind of this idea fully formed and then we can reveal it to you as we make plans to gather again next fall. So reminder that I'd love for you to be part of this digital community. Please visit stmichael.org RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study. There you can join our email list so you get reminders and make sure you're on our email list so that next year you'll be notified specifically about when we will begin, which is typically after Labor Day, and what books we might use as companions to our study and the schedule. All of that's going to be going out to the church in general, but if you're on our email list, we'll make sure you get that information directly in your mailbox. In addition, there's information there about our podcast. You can search for Rector's Bible Study wherever you listen to podcasts, and we will be backloading that podcast with all of the lessons from the last four years. Right now, you can get most of Revelation there, but soon you'll be able to do Luke, Acts, and Genesis all on that podcast, which makes listening so much more convenient. So again, that's stmichael.org slash RBS for information about this class, podcasts, email lists, all that good stuff. One more reminder, I love your questions and I love your comments, so keep them coming during today's class. And if you're on a social media platform, say hi to the people who are joining digitally with you so that we can stay connected to one another as best as we can. Now, before we jump into chapter 21, let's open with a good prayer. Ready? Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together on this day. We give you thanks for the gift of this life. And we give you thanks that we can follow the trail that you have left for us. That visionaries and prophets and apostles and disciples who have come before us can help guide our way as we grow closer and closer to you on this way of love. Today we offer our prayers, our intercessions from the quietness of our hearts and our minds. May all those in our community, our family and our friends, those we love and those we do not even know who need your healing touch, be filled with your spirit, surrounded by your presence, lifted up by those who can care for them the best, that they may know your love in a very deep way. For those of us gathered here today, may we make space inside our hearts and minds that your spirit fill us up and that we be inspired by studying your word to be the disciples you have called us to be, that we can go out into the world transformed and changed to help bring about the change that you hope for in the world you love. 
All this we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, gang. Chapter 21. This is a good one. I know I say that every week, but I just, I think this stuff is fascinating. And so today we are following after the final big defeat of evil, right? So chapter 20 sees that evil once and for all is defeated and destroyed. And now we get to the new creation. So this big arc of Revelation has led to this moment where we are experiencing the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. So today, our study is going to be divided into two sections. Section one, the new heaven and the new earth, and section two, the new Jerusalem. It's the same stuff, but it doesn't matter. We're gonna divide it into two and we're gonna look at the way that John parses this out as a vision because I do think it's, it's remarkable. And it's the kind of parsing and an interesting twisting on this idea that I do think really can stick with us and help us in our own discipleship. So I'm excited to look at those two sections with you today. Let's begin with chapter 21, verse 1, and we're going to do a few verses. Here we go. Then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. All right. Chapter 21 begins to show us the completeness of God's recreation. Chapter 21 and then 22 are going to really put a fine point on this new creation, this new reality, that everything has been transformed. We see that a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea was no more. So here's the big idea. The big idea here is that John's vision here in Revelation is about a heavenly reality that is different than what a lot of us might think heaven to be. In other words, eternal life, that everlasting life, that truth with God forever is not exactly what we all might imagine heaven to be. How many times have you said to someone or have you heard someone say to someone who has lost a loved one that they're watching from heaven, right? We hear this kind of idea like grandma is with you and watching you from heaven, right? She's seeing everything that you're doing or on and on and on. I tend to like to say something a little different to families who are grieving, to people who have lost a loved one. Instead of saying they're watching, I like to say that their loved one is waiting for them in heaven. It's a little bit of a nuance, a little bit of a twist, but there's a difference, I think, between watching and waiting. Here in Revelation, we see a very interesting idea about heaven that is not typically what we think of as heaven. I mean, let's be honest. Most people think of heaven as a place, I guess most people think of heaven as a place. 
I think so. I think that if people were pushed to flesh out their ideas of heaven, they would figure out or they would land on, it's not like a tangible real place right now, but I think our gut reaction is that heaven exists somewhere, that it, it is actually a place, and that souls go somewhere, and that they are there, and that they are, in essence, living some kind of life, some reality, some newness that we don't know about. But there is still this almost, earth is here, heaven is there, Earth is problematic and messy and hurtful and hard, and heaven is none of those things. And so people are kind of saved from the mess of this earth. What we see in John's vision is that heaven is, in a sense, a waiting room, a waiting place prior to the new creation. So I'll say that differently. We've seen little nuggets all along the way in the book of Revelation where those who have died are, in a sense, a stasis. They're, you know, under the altar. They're in a place where they're waiting for this moment when God's promises come to fulfillment, right? This is not simply a earth is hard down there, heaven is great up here, and everyone who's died is now having a great time up in wherever heaven is, and everything is great. Instead, there is this pretty clear sense in Revelation that when we die here, we are held. And that holding, don't hear purgatory, that's not what I mean. It's in essence a waiting for God's ultimate fulfillment of the promise of the new creation. Remember way back when we started Revelation. I said that Genesis and Revelation create a bookend of sorts for the Bible. It's not an accident that Revelation is the very end of the Bible and Genesis is the very beginning because in Genesis we get the creation and in Revelation we get the new creation. The whole arc of salvation story that we find in the Bible is one big cosmic rescue mission. You've heard me say that before. God is wanting to renew and remake the entire creation and ultimately will. But that renewal and recreation will not happen quickly. And until it happens in total, there is this sense that the promise is left somewhat unfulfilled. That's a, that's a totally faithful, orthodox way of understanding things, but it's also not common. And so I want us to sort of sit with this idea for a minute because it's not perhaps the way we typically describe what heaven is or the promise of heaven or even the promise of salvation. It's a little bit different. This is a good opportunity for me to remind you that I'd love questions or suggestions for clarity, because this is a big idea and I don't want us to kind of pass over it in a cursory way. I want us to kind of wrestle with this and tweak it a bit. Okay. John also sees, sorry, I'll, I'll pause for one second in case someone's forming a question. When I was learning about educational theories, 
I was taught that on average, people need seven seconds or more to actually form a question. And I cannot tell you how true that is. Whenever I teach, especially in, in person, it's a little strange to do it digitally like this. Um, but when we're in person, I may say, are there any questions? And then I'll pause and I'll pause for a while. You know, seven seconds of silence is a lot of silence. And it is amazing how right at about seven seconds, someone always asks a question. It just, it takes a minute for us to really form the questions, especially if we're trying to listen. And so I want to sort of say nothing important right now while people are forming those questions. It is hard for me to wait when I'm sitting here by myself in my office. So we're gonna press on after I just told you I shouldn't. John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This newness is a really big idea. We will see that God says, I make all things new, okay? This idea of newness, of recreation, of a total... Um, transformation of everything that is messy is important for us to get here in Revelation. Um, many of you who have gone to funerals over the years have likely heard this passage read from Revelation, right? We get a moment here that sounds very sweet. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away, and the one who is seated on the throne, God says, see, I'm making all things new. What a hopeful word at a moment when people are grieving and sad, when you have lost someone you loved. And here we get these words from John's revelation that God says, I will wipe away every tear. I will make all things new. Mourning will cease. I mean, this is, that's a good, hopeful word to hear when you're in pain and when you've experienced loss. What I want to tweak is it's not simply kind. It's not simply caring. What God is saying here is something so much bigger and deeper and more profound. When God says, I will make all things new, what I really want us to receive is that means all things. Everything, every person, every thought, every place, everything is renewed, made new again. This newness is meant to be completely universal. And the newness is represented in this new Jerusalem. So just, just hear these words for what they are. John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. So we've got an issue about the marriage stuff again. We're going to handle that in a second. But can you see this vision? Out of heaven comes the holy city, the new Jerusalem, literally like coming down out of the sky-ish and landing on the earth, the new earth. Today, we're going to really vet the idea of the new Jerusalem 
because there are huge implications that we could easily miss if we don't really delve into the context of this new Jerusalem. So before we get into the Jerusalem, the new city, I want to address the imagery here that is repeated once again of a bride and her husband. We are going to see it again later in chapter 21, um, but we got a good question, uh, I guess last week, um, said that we are thinking about the relationship with God as a marriage, which is what I spoke about in chapter 19. Um, She says, I want to make sure I understood you correctly, because in my marriage, I feel like a complete equal to my husband. I never, but I never hesitate to say anything I think or feel, whereas with God, it seems like I would be more hesitant to be that good, faithful servant and listen rather than feeling like an equal. That's a really interesting twist on the idea of marriage. So you've heard me say before that Christian theology holds up marriage as this beautiful representation, the symbolic representation of the unity between God and humanity. That in a sense, we say God and humanity, we might say Christ and the church. Marriage represents this union that is sacramental, that is covenantal, that is complete and total. And it's about the best image we have in our human experience to understand the way in which Christ and the church or God and humanity, God and us as individuals, really relate to one another. It is interesting that we we might struggle with this sense of mutuality. I think the desire to not see ourselves as equal to God is a perfectly good way to be. I don't want to say that we are equal to God, but what I want us to focus on is that salvation comes through true love. Jesus came and everything Jesus taught, did, and represents is anchored in the truth of love, the power and the strength of love. True love is not coerced or forced or tricked. True love is mutual and freely given. The imagery of a marriage is really meant to represent the mutuality of love, not that one party is better than the other or that somehow mutuality means equal. We are not God, but we can love God as God loves us. Now we can't on our own, but through God and through our desire to love like God, we can move in that direction. It doesn't happen fully until this new creation, right? The promise that everything will be made new is really where that response to God's love becomes complete. Until then, God loves us and we get the choice to love God back. When we choose to love God back, we are like two people joining in marriage. We are like two individuals or two beings that see one another in 
as completely as possible and make a commitment to one another, a covenant to one another that love is true and that they choose to love one another for good. And entering into that sacramental reality is the best human example we have of the kind of reality and mutuality that we share with God. So that's, that's why this marriage imagery continues to come up because it really does represent the kind of mutual relationship and work and effort and union and covenant that we share with God. None of our symbols are good enough. So nothing we do and nothing in this life is in this on earth is going to really represent what God offers us, but marriage is probably, at least historically, the closest we have. So I hope that that makes a little more sense. Um, now I want to focus on this idea of the holy city and the new Jerusalem. So we say the new city, the holy city is coming down from heaven and I want us to really focus on what Jerusalem meant for the Jewish people and for the followers of Jesus in the first century. So here we're going to have a little aside to make sure we understand that Jerusalem is not just a city. Jerusalem is not just a nice place. Jerusalem is God on earth. Jesus was a good Jew. Jesus called people to be his disciples who were primarily good Jews too. In the first century, in particular the early followers of Jesus, in the first churches, most of them, at least at the beginning, were good Jews. That means understanding Revelation through a Jewish lens is incredibly important so that we get as rich a perspective of the imagery and the symbolism as we can. There are a series of pivotal moments that happened in Jewish history that define the Jewish people and the way that they practice and the way they understand the world. The first is receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, right? We, I mean, that's kind of obvious, right? Moses receives the Ten Commandments. That is really the foundation, it's the root of Judaism forever. Those Ten Commandments that are then unpacked through Midrash and other kind of legal, um, uh, what do I want to say, expanded and expounded upon are all anchored on these Ten Commandments. The literal tablets were put in an ark and that ark was put in a tent and that tent is where God touched the earth. So while Moses and the Israelites were traveling around in the wilderness, they would move that ark, they would move those tablets in the ark from place to place to place because they believed that God literally touched the earth where the ark rested. Now, that happened for generations until David brought the ark to Jerusalem. So that's really the second big moment. The ark's placement in Jerusalem and then Solomon built a temple around the ark represented God's home on earth. If you imagine like a Venn diagram, right? There are these two spheres, the heaven and the earth. You've got God's reality and then you've got the created reality. And there is this 
super tiny sliver of an overlap between those two worlds, and where that overlap happens, that is the place where the ark rests in the temple. God is believed to be physically present. Now, I'm not talking about... Now, today, Judaism has obviously kind of continued to expand their understanding of God in the world. But 2,000 years ago, especially 3,000 years ago, but 2,000 years ago, when Jesus lived, when John is writing, we have this physical understanding of God's presence in the temple, but not just the temple, but in the Holy of Holies. There was a spot in the temple that was deep inside where God physically touched the earth. When Solomon built the temple around the ark and that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, Judaism had to reimagine who they were. We know that from Daniel and the exile. There was a renewal of sorts of what it meant to be Jewish. When they came back out of exile and rebuilt the temple, that's the second temple, that became this glorious representation of God's presence on earth. That's the temple that Jesus went into. But here's the thing. John is writing Revelation in the 90s and the temple was destroyed in 70. John knows that once again, God's physical home on earth has been taken away from humanity. When John tells this vision of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, what John is really saying to his readers is that God will be with us once again in total. Now, John is inheriting this new understanding of God with us through the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so John is balancing this very interesting new idea that God is not only present in the temple at the ark, but God has now come into the world, the incarnation, through the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and the messianic reality of Jesus has changed for good the way that the Jews understood God relating to humanity. And yet, the promise of Christ is not completed until the entire creation is remade. When the holy city comes from heaven to earth, it is a once and for all reconnection between heaven and earth that is represented in the holiness of the city of Jerusalem, just like the temple itself had represented the holy connection between God and humanity for generations before. Good? Haha, <laughs> of course, nice and clear, right? I saw a few questions pop real quickly, and so I want to make sure I check those before we move on. Have me sitting here watching. Um, <laughs> okay, we have some good questions here about death. So 
we have one question where it says, do the dead wait in their graves for Jesus' new creation? Another question is, um, where are we when all this is happening, right? Are we watching or are we called up in the rapture? Is anyone on earth actually seeing this? These are all very good questions. Um, so my favorite answer to questions like this is, I don't really know. But I will tell you what I think we can glean from scripture that is enough to be mostly satisfying. Um, I want to be super clear, (laughs) as an Anglican Christian, right, as an Episcopalian, I am very committed to not going over my skis, so to speak. There are many Christian traditions, and we know major branches, you've got the Roman branch, Orthodox branch, Protestant branch, there are major branches of Christianity that really feel uncomfortable without nailing down answers to questions like these. Anglican Christian theology really doesn't need to nail things down. Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, is very comfortable with mystery, with knowing enough but not knowing exactly the right or true answer. And so I want to preface what I'm about to say with, if you need, need the answer, then you're not gonna get it from me because the truth is we don't know. And if anybody ever tells you they know, they are making that up. Now, they might be making that up with genuine faithfulness, but they're making it up. So. What we see in Revelation and what we see connected through Paul's letters, the Gospels, the prophets, and all of that good stuff is this sense that at death, something changes. For the Jewish people, prior to Christianity, for the Jewish people, what we get is this sense that at death, either that's just it, things are over, or there is a promise of resurrection at some point in the far distant future. That's really one of the differentiating factors between Pharisees and Sadducees, is belief after death. For Christians, we've, well, I can't say for Christians. The idea in Christianity of what happens after death has evolved many times over the millennia. Where we land in the Episcopal Church is something that is still comfortable and cozy in the mystery, but got a little bit of direction. Death is not the end. We are clear about that. Death is a point at which our life changes. Okay, we're clear about that. In the resurrection, we are made new, which means everything we had or needed in this life, we no longer need because we are made new in God's grace, goodness, and love. Let me tell you how that the rubber hits the road there. Episcopalians are pretty much always cremated. There are many Christian uh, belief systems, denominations, groups, whomever, that have a real issue with cremation because there is this sense that we need our bodies in the new creation, you know, no. But to get at one of these questions, there is a branch of Judaism 
and certainly in Christianity and Islam as well, all the Abrahamic traditions, that says when Christ returns, when the holy city comes and touches the earth, in a sense, right, which can all be effectively the same moment. When Christ comes back, when the city returns, when God renews creation, however you want to say that, that's the moment of resurrection. And that everybody who has died has been effectively waiting. Now, here's the truth. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I should not say truth. Here's, it is entirely possible, I might even say likely, that how we think of time is not God's time, right? That's why I'm super comfortable with, when you look at the creation stories in Genesis, the fact that there are two different creation stories, no problem. That the creation stories are told through days, day one this happens, day two this happens, day three this happens, and yet I believe that it's not days like we think of days, no problem for me at all. Because God's time is not our time. Why in the world would we ever think that we could limit God to our understanding of the world? Please, that is just ridiculous. And anybody who needs to fit God within our understanding of the world has a very small view of God. So none of that is necessary for me. So if that's not necessary, why then would we need to put a timetable or a time scale on anything that happens after death? I do think what we see in this vision makes decent sense to me that those who have died are in effect waiting for the new creation, for that resurrection moment. But could it be that their wait seems like an instant to them? Whereas it might seem like thousands and thousands of years to us, it might be a moment for them before that recreation. Is that possible? Of course it's possible. Why is that possible? Because all things are possible through God. And so why would we limit God and make God so small to fit our understanding of reality when I am very comfortable acknowledging that whatever I know is absolutely limited by my humanity. And I will never limit God through those lenses. Okay, so there is my, I guess, kind of answer to your questions. You're welcome. <laughs> um, got one more. Kim, Kimberly says, so revolution, so revolution that God is with us wherever we are, yes. I'm not, revolution, revelation? I'm not sure what that word is. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, but I'll, I'll kind of tweak it and say, so God is with us wherever we are. Yes. We get that idea really anchored in Acts. Um, so I think I said this a couple weeks ago where there's this shift in understanding the Holy Spirit that happens after Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus comes, sees the apostles, disciples, whomever is there, and Jesus either opens their minds, gives them the Spirit, or the Spirit comes after Jesus' ascension. We get The stories are a little different. Um, and so the stories that we get effectively, if you kind of put them all together, show that the Spirit is now with us for good, that in our discipleship, God's Holy Spirit is now in us and with us. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was around, right? But people received the Spirit of God 
in fits and starts, little bursts, prophets, judges, kings, you name it. People receive the Spirit of God as, as a moment when, it's sort of like a moment of clarity, right? They would get this moment of clarity, of strength, of purpose, of intention, and then the Spirit would go. And so people would pray for God's Spirit to rest on them in order to, say, make a decision or do something that is extraordinary. After Christ's resurrection, the Spirit takes on a different form. The Spirit becomes, in a sense, God's presence in us and in the creation that is more permanent, like a guide. So when we pray, we are praying for guidance from the Spirit. Now, I do want to note, I hope it's implied here, but God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? So we talk about the persons of God. That's simply to help us in our limited understanding of the world, but we're not talking about something that isn't God, right? When I talk about the Spirit, I'm talking about God. When I talk about Christ, I'm talking about God. So they're all interchangeable. That's the Trinity. And I don't really want to say much more about that because I don't understand it just like you don't understand it. We just have faith. The Spirit is with us, in us, guiding us, and the Spirit's what we have until we are recreated and renewed in this kind of moment. This vision of revelation really points at that complete and total healing, wholeness, and renewal of the new creation. Okay, let's see. We've got, oh, funny, I like the comments, thank you. Okay, so here we have, I wanna kind of press on because we do need to finish this chapter. Um, let's look at verses six through eight. Okay, let's jump back in. Then he said to me, that's God. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things and I will be their God and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the, and all the liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay, God is all things, alpha and omega. Revelation is this wonderful bookend to the beginning, which is the creation in Genesis. But Revelation is, just, is not just the end. So although I might say bookend, here we have creation, here we have new creation. What we see in Revelation is that the end is not actually the end, but that in the new creation, God takes everything. So this is not just the end, the omega. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the beginning and the end. There is a new creation, a new order, a total renewal that includes the beginning and the end, not just the end. Now, I say that, and it's kind of like, what? I want to offer, and I just, I cannot unpack all this right now. There are two major ways, <laughs> um, I thought about saying this and now I'm wondering if I'm opening a Pandora's box. Okay, I'm gonna say it anyway, but just, just hold on to it and maybe don't even ask a question about it right now. Just kind of let it, let it seep in and see what you think. 
When God is the Alpha and the Omega, God is everything. God is outside of time and place. God is total. Everything then becomes God. We cannot help as humans, as Western humans, trying to figure out what that means with before and after and during, because for us, time is linear. There are other parts of the world, particularly the Eastern world, where time is cyclical. There are two major ways of understanding time, kind of in the human philosophical tradition. You've got West and East. In the West, time is linear. What happened yesterday is back there. What happens tomorrow is over there. And time moves in a line. In the East, time is cyclical, which is what gives way to these Eastern ideas of things like reincarnation, right? Which is not Christian, but it is understandable if one understands time is cyclical, then effectively you're returning to a point you've already been in. I want us to, not necessarily, I mean, cyclical time in the East, that, that's fine. We can be intellectuals and understand that. But what I want us to do is put down the need for time to be linear, which is kind of like saying, put down your head. I mean, it's, it's hard for us because it's just everything. It colors everything that we understand and the way we see the world in every way. But in this moment, when God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, God is now beyond time. There is no past. There is no future. There is just everything. God is all in all. And we simply receive that. Don't ask a question about it. Just understand that in the new creation, everything is everything. Everything is God, everything is us, everything is love, you name it, all in all. Now, in addition, we see a very neat moment here where the image of the spring of the water of new life pops up. Ah, it's almost 11.15, I'm running out of time, I'm talking too much. Um, so this is where I think things get really good. So the idea of the water of new life, this is an image that we are very familiar with, right? Water as the life giver and Christ, Jesus talks about the water of new life in a pretty explicit way multiple times in the Gospels. There is a scene that I think is so critically important for us to understand in the big arc of things. That's the Samaritan woman at the well. And so I'm going to read from John chapter 4. Don't, don't need to worry about it. Um, this is something you know, but I want you to hear what Jesus says that has to do with water. Okay? So... I think we're familiar with the story. A Samaritan woman came to draw water at the well, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. 
The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty. Oh, it gives me chills to read that passage. I think there may not be a more important passage in the Gospels than that moment of Jesus with the woman at the well. We see this beautiful imagery of water as being the source of life. Now for us, talking about water as this life force and this life source seems beautifully poetic, but that's because we are affluent, comfortable uh, people in the West, right, in America. But for the people in the first century, and you know, honestly, for the majority of people on earth today, water is l- way more than poetic. Water is critically important. It is fragile, it is scarce, it must be protected. Water is everything. And so this image of water as life is clear for what it truly is in that literal sense, we cannot live without water. But the water of life roots itself all the way back to the story of creation in Genesis. So now I'm going to read just a couple verses from Genesis chapter 2. Here we have the second story of creation, and the garden has just been planted. And Genesis 2.9 says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. In the beginning, in this beautiful, perfect garden, in this perfect creation, there flowed a river that sustained and fed everything. That's all they needed. It was the river of life. Here in Revelation, in the new creation, we see that the spring of the water of life is renewed and recreated and unifies this before and after, this alpha, the omega, into something complete and total and new. And so now I have pictures for you because I cannot read this passage without thinking of my previous parish in Memphis. In that church, beautiful little church, behind the altar in the Raridas, there is what is called a triptych. And many of you know this, it's, it's usually iconography where you almost have kind of three panels and they tell a story. Behind the altar, there is a triptych and I'm gonna show you this image. And so I apologize to those of you who are listening to this and not watching with us, um, but I want you to see how powerful these images are. So I couldn't find a big picture of the whole altar piece um, except for an image of me doing a wedding there. <laughs> so that's me in the wedding. Um, and so behind us, behind the altar, you see the flowers and right above the flowers is that triptych that I described. It is a representation of this passage in Revelation of the new creation. I'm gonna zoom in real quickly. Obviously, there is right in the center a cross that sits in front of the Reredos. But if you can look just behind that cross, what you see is the Lamb flanked by the Alpha and the Omega standing above the four rivers of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, 
that one river that flows out of Eden becomes four rivers, including the Tigris and the Euphrates, that fed the world at the time, right? So that's the Mesopotamia area. But what you see here represented is this revelation imagery of the lamb triumphing. You see you've got that kind of flag above the lamb of triumph over evil containing everything, the Alpha and the Omega and the new river of life that flows in the new creation. Isn't that amazing? I think that kind of thing is just, is just stunning. I've never seen another church where the main imagery behind the altar is of revelation. It's, it's stunning. And so I thought I would just share that with you all today. So that's the end of this first section of Revelation, New Heaven and New Earth. Um, it was going to take me longer, but now I see I only have 10 minutes and I do want to get to the New Jerusalem. Um, and so hopefully we'll finish. If not, we'll finish next week with chapter 22. Um, so again, questions, comments, very welcome. Um, I don't see any more questions, although I do see some funny comments. Thank Liz. Um, okay. Looking at the new Jerusalem, the rest of chapter 21, let's turn to verse 9. We'll read through a few verses and then hopefully get through the rest of the chapter. Verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the Israelites. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, we will pause there. We begin with continued echoes of marriage. So we, we get this, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So we've already kind of touched on marriage, so I'm just going to Hold that and say, I've said what I need to say about that. Um, but it does point to this sacramental holy union. Then we get the new Jerusalem represented as a fulfillment of the promise of God through the generations. So we see 12 gates and the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the Israelites. And then the wall of the city has 12 foundations. And on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we see the holy number 12 repeated multiple times here. But we see this holy number 12 as connecting dots throughout history. And that's really remarkable here. So in this new holy city, we see that the first big covenant, right? That first Mosaic covenant with the 12 tribes of Israel is connected to the new covenant through Christ with the 12 apostles. So we've got this amazing imagery here of connecting the old with the new, of the first with the last. It's again, alpha, omega. It's taking the whole and putting it all together in this new creation. And then we will see later that the gates will never be shut. We're not quite there yet. Let's keep going with verses 15 and 16. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. 
the city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod fifteen hundred miles. Its length and width and height are equal. So we'll start with the measuring of the city. This city is immense. It is gigantic. The angel measures the city as being fifteen hundred miles by fifteen hundred miles, huge, and this might cause readers at the time to be a bit shocked at the sheer size of this city. But it's also to note that fifteen hundred miles is almost the exact distance between Jerusalem and Rome. Oh, John. He's a clever one. So this is not just meant to be huge, although that's a perfectly good thing to take from this. What John is really doing here in this image, John is actually representing the world as the new creation. Because remember, at the time in the first century, the world was the Roman Empire. Obviously, people knew there were plenty of people outside the Roman Empire doing remarkable things. But for John and his readers, the world that needed remade, the world as they know it that was broken and fallen and hurt, was Rome. It was the empire. And so, in this incredible moment, John tells this story and this vision as a means of renewing and recreating the world, the whole Roman Empire. So this New Jerusalem, you might think to yourself, why are we measuring the New Jerusalem? Right? Isn't it everything? Well, actually, even saying it's 1,500 miles really does mean symbolically it is everything because it is Rome in total, everything they know. That's kind of cool. I love that little moment. Now, note as well that the city is described as a cube. Its length and width and height are equal. Okay. Do you understand the magnitude of this? So, just when you think a fifteen hundred mile by fifteen hundred mile square of Earth is big, now make that three dimensional. So we're not just talking fifteen hundred miles long and wide. We're talking about fifteen hundred miles high as well. This new Jerusalem. Is a gigantic, magnificent cube. Why in the world would the New Jerusalem be a cube? Are you ready for it? Because it's so cool. I have to start by saying, remember at the beginning when I talked about the temple being the place where God touched the earth. Where God actually touched the earth was in the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Now, in the temple, that was the Holy of Holies. I'm gonna give you a little image because I know my visual learners need this, right? So here we go. If you look at a schematic of the temple, starting on the right side of your screen, you see the entry point. There is an entrance gate. It's the outer courtyard. It's the altar of offerings. That's where. Any good Jew would come to make a sacrifice on a holy day, but then sacrifices of certain kind would be taken into the inner sanctum, the holy place, by the priests. 
But that's still not the holiest place of all because the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant would rest and the only people who could go into the Holy of Holies were the high priests. And nobody could touch the Ark. Nobody could actually go in and do anything to the Ark, even the high priest himself. But look at the shape of the Holy of Holies. From an aerial view, I hope you see it is a square. Here's the real kicker. The Holy of Holies was not just a square. The Holy of Holies was a perfect cube, defined specifically to be 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. The Holy of Holies, the place where God actually touches the earth, God's home on earth, is a cube. And so here in Revelation, the image of the new Jerusalem coming down to earth, where heaven and earth are unified and touch each other, where the whole creation is made new, is itself a profound, gigantic, amazing cube because now we don't need a temple. Now we don't need a place on earth that represents God's presence because now in the new creation, in the recreation, Everything has been made new. Everything is now divine. Everything is now God. Even the city itself. Everything. What has been made new is everything in every way forever for good. How good is that? I love this kind of stuff. That symbolism, it makes me crazy. It's so good. So we are not quite done yet with chapter 21, but it would be very easy to pick up here next week, end chapter 21 as we go into chapter 22, which will end our entire Revelation study. And so don't miss it. Be back here next week for the last study of Revelation. And until then, give me your questions, your comments, email them to me or to Meredith, and we're going to close out strong. God bless you all. I'll see you next week.